Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Nikki Nielsen joins the show again. On July 25th, 2021, Dr. Nielsen joined the show and we had a conversation about the previous pharaoh of Egypt named Tutankhamun. In today's episode, Dr. Nielsen is back on the show and we're going to have a conversation about the founding of the 19th dynasty in Egypt. Dr. Nielsen is a Danish Egyptologist. He's a lecturer in Egyptology in the Department of Classics, Ancient History, Archaeology and Egyptology at the University of Manchester, based in the UK. He's author of the book, Egyptomaniacs, How We Became Obsessed with Ancient Egypt, which was published by Pen and Sword Books. And Dr. Nielsen joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Nikki. Thank you so much and thanks for having me back. It's good to connect with you again, Nikki. Yes. So to start off, can you, can you share how the construct of the Egyptian dynasties came into existence? Well, that, uh, that's quite a deep question. Um, really, it's, it's to do with a classical historian called Manetho, who's a, a bit enigmatic. Um, he wrote the history of Egypt um, very late during the pharaonic period. Um, and his original manuscript, his original book is lost, but bits of it are preserved in the writings of, of later authors. So we don't have a complete manuscript, we have, we have bits. Um, and he divides Egypt into these 30 odd uh, dynasties. And by dynasties, we really, well, we mainly refer to family groups in a sense. There is a, usually a familial relationship between the different dynasties and what causes one dynasty to end is when one ruling family dies out or loses power for whatever reason um, and is then replaced by another uh, ruling dynasty. Sometimes they're linked, but more often than not, um, they, they, they're not. We're looking at a specific at a specific family. In some dynasties, like the 19th dynasty, for instance, by the end of it, there is no more, uh, there is no longer any any blood connection to the start of the dynasty, but they're still kind of classified as the same dynasty. And that, that in a sense, is why it gets a bit messy, um, really, uh, the, the sort of dynastic system. It's not, it, it doesn't always work that well, but by now it's become such an ingrained convention that I don't think we can really move away from it. Um, one of the pharaohs that we're going to talk about today, Horemheb, for instance, I would argue is really someone who fits much better with being the first pharaoh of the 19th dynasty rather than the last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. Um, and, and I'll explain why in a moment, but, but it would, I think, confuse everyone very much if, <laughs> if, if we suddenly started shifting the kings around, because first of all, I would need to get sort of wide agreement, which there isn't necessarily uh, on, on all of these things. And also, I think by now it's just become almost a custom. Um, of course, we update chronologies, we change chronologies based on, on new 
um, archaeological evidence, but the overall structure, the dynastic system, tends to uh, persevere, even if it, it is a very old system which doesn't always work that well. It should be said that Manetho also includes a lot of dynasties before the actual pharaohs of Egypt. He includes the dynasties of gods when the gods ruled Egypt and things like that, um, which is you know clearly fiction. Um, so it's not uh, it, it's not only the kind of human rulers. Um, also, he tends to ascribe. Sometimes you can see where he's coming from if we look at what we know today. Um, it sort of matches up with what he says, but he he tends to m sort of mix up kings and maybe two kings get amalgamated into one. Um, maybe reigns get exaggerated, either you know it's very long or very short. Um, and he also tends to add these the tiny little bits of, of biographical information that is you probably most of it is, is made up and certainly very difficult to verify so you might have you know this and this king ruled for 30 years and wasn't eaten by a crocodile something apropos of nothing that gets added at the end but that um that can be a little bit difficult to uh to to actually verify for us so that's why we use the, the dynastic system okay what what year or century was it created and I thought I would start the question off in, in, in this versus jumping right into the, the circumstances in case someone's listening and saying, well, what's the, what, what are the, what are the dynasties, right? And what I'm understanding yeah, yeah. from, yeah, and what I'm understanding well, from your answer is it's, it's, con, it's convention and there's, there's common agreement that if people are going to have constructive conversations in modern times about uh, history in, in Egypt, it seems like there's consensus that people rely on this this construct that was created at one point in the past yeah so so manetho uh lived during the and worked during the, the the ptolemaic period during the reign of ptolemy II. that's when he produced his work so so very you know right towards the end of the of the pharaonic period of Egyptian history okay okay thank you nikki okay so to create sufficient background and context and then obviously we'll work our way into the details with with this topic today what was the 19th dynasty of Egypt? Well, the 19th dynasty is, is what's known as the Ramesside period, uh, the beginning of the Ramesside period, um, which is between the 19th and 20th dynasties um, taken together. Um, it's, a period, it's an interesting period. I find it very, a very fascinating period. Um, it follows on from the very strong 18th dynasty and the 18th dynasty had really seen both extreme highs and extreme lows in terms of how Egypt was governed and, and Egypt's power both internally and, and externally. So you had these immensely powerful rulers like Thutmose III, Egypt's Napoleon, uh, and all of his military campaigns. You have Amenhotep III, a great builder and diplomat. Um, really some of the greatest pharaohs to rule Egypt at any at any time. And of course also Hatshepsut, um, the, the, the female pharaoh who, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that sometimes she's just reduced to being a, fem a female pharaoh and nothing else, but she was extremely, uh, an extremely capable ruler, um, both from the point of view of trade and building work and, and, and diplomacy. Um, but then you also had these periods of real, um, hardship, I guess, and confusion for Egypt. Um, the Amarna period, of course, was problematic for a number of reasons um, with regards to Egypt's foreign policy. Um, and then these 
repeated succession crises, in a sense, where um, there are some rulers after Akhenaten dies, but they rule for a very short period of time, like Smenkare, and honestly, it, it seems that there's a certain amount of undignified pushing and shoving um, for the throne going on. Then Tutankhamun comes to power, and before he can, uh, he can uh, have an heir, uh, a blood relation, uh, or blood heir, um, he dies. And then there's another succession crisis, and then I, uh, his, his, uh, his minister, basically usurps the successor that Tutankhamun had appointed, Oromhed, uh, and becomes pharaoh. Then he dies after a very short reign because he's quite an old man. Then there's another succession crisis, and then Oromhed takes power in what probably was more or less a military coup. Um, so in the 18th dynasty really had some of the real high points of, of the pharaonic period and of the new kingdom, and the real low points as well. Um, and the Ramesside dynasty is born out of this succession crisis at the end of the 18th dynasty. Okay, and we'll obviously work our way more into the, some of those details. And if anyone is interested in learning more about the previous female pharaoh of Egypt, Hatshepsut, that Dr. Nielsen mentioned moments ago, an episode has been covered on the show with Dr. Philippe Taturka. So that's findable online if you want to learn more about who she was and the life she lived. What time period are we speaking then for the most part uh, in this conversation today, Nikki? We're, we're mostly dealing with between 1300 and 1200 um, BC, basically. Okay. 13, okay. So what was the... Let, I'd suggest... Um, so let's spend a bit more time then on what occurred. And you did, you did do an excellent job in kind of a summary way to get the conversation going and describing some of the succession events that occurred before the 19th dynasty. And uh, I'd like to spend a bit more time on that and obviously work our way into the, the 19th dynasty. Can you describe what the, what's known about the geopolitical environment in Egypt leading, leading up to the 19th dynasty? And I'm not, I'm not necessarily pegging a specific year in the question i want to um make it a broad question and then and then you can run with it in the, the way that you see fit well as we talked about last time in the, in the episode on tutankhamun um tutankhamun comes to the throne and his advisors probably not him personally he's too young but his advisors essentially start undoing a lot of the um, social changes that had been uh, put in place, social religious changes that have been put in place by Akhenaten to become its father. So instead of worshipping the Aten, um, they return to worshipping the traditional Egyptian pantheon, primarily Amun-Ra. Um, the court returns eventually, uh, probably early in Tutankhamun's reign, from Tel Amarna to the, the traditional seat of power in Thebes, um, Amun's city, of course, the, 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 the site of the Karnak temple. Um, so Tutankhamun, or rather his, his advisors, make a number of, of social changes meant at essentially undoing what had been done during the Amarna period. We also see a, a return to a more sort of conventional artistic styles. The the um, the art of the Amarna period seems to have been quite um, experimental in many ways, um, and a lot of that is undone. Although some uh, some bits of it sort of linger uh, during this post-Amarna period. Um, 
in terms of stability, well, I, a country that is a, a, a supreme monarchy is perhaps never entirely stable when you have a child king. It's, it's a bit of a precarious um, situation. Um, it's also something that foreign enemies might take advantage of because they might look at this, you know, eight-year-old on the throne and think, hmm, well, if, if we try, you know, to, to take a little bit of territory, how quickly can they react given how much confusion, how much chaos is going on at home? Can they really, you know, this might be a good time to test to test the, 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 the limits, essentially. And indeed, a newly emerging power in the Middle East, the Hittite Empire, does exactly that. Um, and basically, um, there's a certain amount of saber-rattling going on, let's put it like that, between the Egyptians and the Hittites during the, uh, the reign of Tutankhamun, um, and then into the reign of, of Horemheb as well. And I think that really starts because the Hittites are looking at the situation in Egypt, which does, from an outsider's perspective, look very chaotic, um, and they sense an opportunity there to try to test uh, test the waters, essentially. Um, when Tutankhamun dies, because he dies without an heir, that, of course, again, creates a succession crisis. Um, the, the strength of having uh, this kind of very strict monarchical system, which is, well, essentially a dictatorship, um, is the stability of having a succession, right? You always know who's going to be on the throne because it's the firstborn of the ruling, ruling king. That is also the weakness of that system because once that succession is called into question or challenged or breaks down for whatever reason, such as the king dying without an heir, you then have a bit of a problem because you, you've got a court that are used to things just happening they, they're used to uh, a normal succession and suddenly you get all these different factions and palace coups and things like that uh, as people try to jockey for power um, and that does seem to be what happens at the end of, of uh, well at the end of Tutankhamun's life when he dies because during his reign he has designated his uh, generalissimo his chief the chief commander of his armies Horemheb he has designated Horemheb as his heir apparent his crown prince, if you will, of course, only on the condition that Tutankhamun died childless. So this was this is an insurance policy, right? Tutankhamun doesn't expect to die childless, but just in case, to avoid another succession crisis, he names Horemheb as his chosen successor. However, it isn't Horemheb that actually succeeds him. It's I, the other strong man at the Egyptian court, and one of Tutankhamun's chief ministers. So what happened? You know, why, why, why didn't Horemheb, given that he actually had the right to take the throne, because you know he wasn't a blood relation of Tutankhamun, and, and he certainly wasn't his child, but he had been appointed as the heir apparent. So why didn't he take the throne? Well, one possibility um, is that it's because Horemheb wasn't in Egypt. Horemheb was somewhere in the Near East fighting off the Hittites um, in, in Syria when Tutankhamun died. So he couldn't take the throne because he couldn't really sort of push his claim. Um, and before he managed to get back, I had, um, had Tutankhamun buried. And of course, a, a really important part of being the successor to uh, the king in Egypt is being responsible for the king's burial. So if we look at the tomb decoration in Tutankhamun's tomb, we can see that the very, very important opening of the mouth ritual, which is really where you have the dead king represented as Osiris, 
and, and another figure, which is usually the crown prince, um, represented in a sense as Horus, his chosen successor, performing this opening of the mouth ritual on the king's mummy. And it is I who is performing this ritual. So in doing that, he's basically made himself Tutankhamun's successor. So before the Horemheb can move his power base, before he can really do anything, it's already too late. And the throne has, has gone to I. Um, there isn't a civil war, there isn't anything like that, and we might wonder why Oromheb, who clearly has the backing of the army, doesn't simply kick I out. Um, but that doesn't seem to happen. Instead, Oromheb continues to serve as, as chief of the army. Um, but it is clear that I, because I at this point must have been a fairly old man, um, he knows that he can't personally hold on for that much longer because he, he is quite old. Um, but what he spends his four-year reign doing is essentially trying to position his son, Nahmin, to be his successor. Um, more or less to try to mess up any chances that Horemheb has of, of taking the throne once I has died. Um, when I then does die, um, it turns out that whatever plans he made didn't work. Um, because Nahmin, his son, basically vanishes from the historical record. We have no idea really what happened to him. Um, and Horemheb emerges as the new pharaoh. And, and that does seem to be, well, borderline a military coup, essentially. Horemheb is not going to be sidelined two times in a row. Um, and that way, that way he ends up as, as the, new, the new king of Egypt. Okay. And these events that you're describing, Nikki, what's the what's the main sources for, for these events that uh, scholars in modern times rely on? Well, some of them are inscriptional, of course. Some of it is educated guesswork. The fact that Horam had, uh, during the early part of his reign, he seems to target anything associated with Ai. Um, Ai's mortuary temple is destroyed, his tomb is, is uh, vandalized. Horam doesn't really seem to have liked Ai very much. Um, of course, the, the, the depiction of I in uh, Tutankhamun's tomb is another um, is another uh, a kind of clue uh, as to uh, as to what's going on. But the evidence, of course, is quite shaky. We know that Horemheb was made the heir because he, he uses these titles about himself in various statuary, um, which were, were clearly royally sanctioned if they were set up in temples and places like that. You're not really going to be able to necessarily lie about about that um so it is a it is a quite confusing period and the evidence base is quite fragmentary but i think once it's all constructed there is a certain narrative that makes sense and takes all the um facts into account um even disparate as they as they are and from horrorhead's reign itself we have a more solid evidence base really for what he does because he very helpfully writes it down um, in, in what's called the Great Edict of Horemheb, which I guess is really the closest thing you're going to get to a sort of policy document from, uh, from ancient Egypt. It's basically Horemheb who sets out a series of um, political and social changes that he wants to make um, in order to, well, in his optic at least, bring Egypt back to some sort of semblance of order after these repeated succession crises and after the Amarna period as well. Um, one thing he seems to spend a lot of time on in this great edict, one thing that seems to have exercised quite a lot is the notion of corruption. Um, that in the absence of clear leadership and a clear chain of command, 
um, corruption among state officials had kind of run rampant um, throughout the country, including military officers um, who had taken to, to, you know, do stuff like collect illegal taxes and just wander into villages and essentially steal stuff from people. Um, and he tries to put a stop to this with a series of rather draconian punishments. Um, so even high-ranking officials and military officers who are found to breach uh, these uh, laws that the, the, the king sets out, the punishment is to have their nose and ears amputated and to be demoted to privates if they're soldiers um, and shipped off to one of the border forts uh, to live out their life, assuming, of course, they survive having the nose and, uh, and, and ears amputated, um, given uh, you know things like lack of antibiotics and stuff like that. It's not perhaps entirely guaranteed that you're going to survive that particular um, particular treatment. Um, so very draconian measures, um, including for high-ranking officers. Now, this could, of course, just be Horam Heb talking big, essentially, trying to show himself as a, as a good ruler. We don't know whether he actually went through with any of this. Um, but I think it talks to a, a desire to try to re-establish um, Egypt of the mid-18th dynasty, in a sense, that the period before the Amarna period, which is really, Horemheb had probably experienced it as a young man, the reign of Amenhotep III, when Egypt was quite prosperous and, and, and wealthy and, and respected on the international scene. And then there are all these, from Horemheb's point of view, unfortunate incidents um, that leads to Egypt being weakened internationally, um, the emergence of a new enemy, the Hittites, um, and also, apparently, at least if we, if we believe the Great Egypt, um, a lot of social problems uh, and economic problems within, within Egypt as a direct result of all of this. Before we go to more the, the circumstances, Hormheb, the later part of Hormheb's life and the, the beginning of the 19th dynasty, do, do scholars know why the, the states of like, the Hittites and, and Egypt were antagonistic towards each other in this period? Well, I, I think part of it was because they were interested in the same territories. Um, the Hittites at this point are very much in the ascendant, um, and that's partly because another ancient empire, the Mitannian Empire, um, which had been allies with Egypt, are, um, are being pushed out, basically, by the Assyrians in the south and by the, by the Hittites in the north, and the Hittites are expanding, basically. Their state is growing, they need more territory, and they're taking that territory from the Italians. Um, and that brings them, well, essentially right border to border with Egypt um, in, in northern Syria. Uh, of course, this isn't Egypt, Egypt, well, it is Egyptian territory, but these are a series of Egyptian vassal states. Um, in, in modern-day Syria and, and, and Palestine and Israel and Canaan that, that are loyal to Egypt. Um, and these are the territories that the Hittites are interested in because, you know, if, if they can conquer them, then those basalt states will be loyal to the Hittites and they'll pay tribute to them. So there's a, there's a financial incentive uh, in controlling territory. And then I suspect, very much like the Egyptians themselves, they are interested in these territories as buffer zones um, the Egyptians set up this complex network of vassals across the ancient Near East, partly for financial reasons and, and partly also because that way an enemy has to conquer a lot of territory loyal to Egypt before they even get to the Egyptian border. Um, it's to prevent anyone being able to just do a sort of uh, lightning campaign and suddenly be outside the walls of Memphis. Um, and I suspect this 
the Hittites are thinking along the same lines. They've got quite a few enemies um, in the Near East, and potential enemies. Of course, Egypt is a potential enemy because it's a powerful empire. The Mitannians are actual enemies that they're at war with. Um, so I'm sure that they were interested in creating a network of, of satellite states as well, that they could draw on for resources, um, draw on for levy troops as well, um, and also places where they could garrison troops to make sure that a foreign uh, invader would not have an, an easy strike straight into their heartland. Okay. Do you want to go to the what's known about the later period of Hormheb's life and, uh, and then how the 19th uh, dynasty begins? Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, really, for, for everything that Horemheb does to, I guess, try to, to establish or re-establish Egypt, uh, Egypt's kind of international standing in, in order, um, he is unable, in a sense, to, to do the thing that would have ensured it completely. Um, Horemheb um, doesn't have a, a child. Um, he is married at least twice, but he doesn't have children with either of his, his wives. Um, it's possible that his second wife, who may have been distantly related to the Amana royal family, that may be a marriage of convenience to make, you know, a political marriage basically, to, to make sure that Horemheb's legitimacy to the throne was underlined. Um, but she possibly died in childbirth um, after repeated miscarriages. Um, so Horemheb doesn't have an heir. And, and really, he is not a young man at this point in his reign. And there is suddenly this threat of another succession crisis, the third row. Um, and Horemheb moves to head that off. And he actually makes, I think, a series of quite smart decisions. Um, he appoints one of his old um, military buddies, basically, a colleague, um, a guy called Paramesu, to be his successor. In the same way, actually, the exact same titles that to Tutankhamun. Uh, had given Horemheb, he now gives to, to Paramesu. Um, it's possible that Paramesu were actually older, is actually older than Horemheb. So you might think, well, that's that's kind of stupid to, to make him your successor. Um, but Paramesu already has a son, a young son, um, Seti I, uh, or the later Seti I, and he may also at this point have had a grandson, which would be the future Ramesses the Great. So, in a sense, Horemheb wasn't appointing a successor, he was appointing a dynasty to follow him. Um, and that's quite smart, really. Um, and, 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 you know, as much as you can future-proof anything, um, I think that was, an that was an attempt to future-proof the Egyptian succession, at least for a couple of generations, um, to give the country time to, to get over um, this quite chaotic, um, succession following the death of Akhenaten. Now, both Paramesu and Seti are interesting, very interesting people because they are like Horemheb in a way. They are not from Thebes. They are not part of the Theban or the royal elite. Um, they're not related to the 18th dynasty royal family, as far as we know, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, they come from the northeastern Nile Delta. Their family comes from the area around Abaris, the old Hyksos capital. So quite far from the, the centers of power at Memphis and, and Thebes. In the same way that Horemheb probably comes from a small settlement in the Fayum, um, he also is a bit of an outsider um, who 
becomes powerful through the military. The military is Horonhead's vehicle to power, and it is Paramesu and Seti's vehicles to power as well. Paramesu was a fortress commander, um, a stable uh, overseer as well. Um, he has a series of high-ranking military titles before he becomes one of Horonhead's vizier, as does Seti. Um, so they are military individuals that use the, 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 the army in a sense to to get high-ranking positions in the more sort of civil administration if that makes sense how come um when when someone does a like a cursory search on online the name and my pronunciation may be um, a, a bit off here uh, vizier ramesses the first why does that name come up as the the first pharaoh of the 19th dynasty is it the same person as Paramentu well, or that, something that, else that, that is yes indeed because Paramesu, when he becomes king changes his name um he takes the name ramesu that is one of his his uh his uh his, 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 his known and his prone names meaning ray has birthed Ray has created him. So Paramesu becomes Ramesu uh, or Ramesses as we uh, as we sort of amplify it to Ramesses. Um, Seti has uh, Seti the first, that is his actual given name as far as we know, um, and it is quite a popular name in the family. But but Paramesu subtly changes his name when, when Horemhet dies and he takes the throne. So that's that's why. I'm glad I asked the question. I was curious. Yeah, no, it, it, it is quite confusing because, of course, there are, you know, an, an ancient Egyptian king has five different names because the names are not just names. They are ways to express um, political intentions, basically. Um, so if the, the, the five names, by the way, they're called Horus name, uh, the, the Nepti name or the two ladies name, the golden Horus name, and then the pre-nomen and the nomen. Um, so for Ramesses the first, uh, for instance, as his golden Horus name, he chooses a name that translates and means restoring Ma'at throughout the two lands. Ma'at being um, the natural order of things and justice in, in some, some way, the, the good running of the universe, basically. Um, so in that case, that name is a clear indication for what he sees his role as Pharaoh to be very much like Oremheb did. He is in he, he is intending to re-establish the proper order of things after this uh, slightly confusing interim period. As you know, with uh, on the topic of Roman history, um, certain figures you get into a lot of various names as well. In some cases, given names uh, at birth and family names, but then also appellations over time in the person's indeed, career. Indeed, 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 and and it, it, it's something that continues as well uh, when. Uh, Ramesses the first dies, and Seti the first, his son takes over. Seti plays a sort of historical word play with his name, which is quite interesting. One of his names is Prenomens, because Seti sees himself um, as a successor to two of the greatest kings of the 18th dynasty, Thutmose the third, the warrior pharaoh, and Amenhotep the third, the builder and the diplomat. And Seti wishes to channel these two very well-remembered rulers uh, in his own reign. So uh, the pre-nomen of Thutmosis the, the third was Menkepa Ra, and the pre-nomen of Amenhotep the third was Nebmat Ra. So um, Seti takes as his pre-nomen 
made Mount Ra, which is literally an amalgamation of the two pre-Normans of Thutmosis III and Amenhotep III. So he's, he's actually continuing bits of their name um, as his own, uh, because in that way he signals to the world that he wants to be there, be viewed, I guess, as their sort of spiritual inheritor. Does Ramesses, and I, and I under, I'll, I'll use the, just for the, the, the sake of um, being colloquial in the conversation, I'll, I'll uh, reference him as, uh, as, as Ramesses. Um, yeah, let's call, let's call him Ramesses, because it's, it's confusing anyway, and, and he gives up the Palamesu name when he becomes king anyway. So yes, Ramesses, I think, is perfectly fine. And we mean the same person when we're, when we're talking. <laughs> okay. We mean the same person. Uh, so, yeah, so Ramesses, does he become pharaoh of Egypt upon Horemheb's death or earlier? Uh, upon Horemheb's death, uh, he may have uh, served as a sort of co-regent for a time, but, but he becomes the pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt, when Horemheb dies. Um, unfortunately, not for very long. Um, Ramesses is, is an old man at this point. Uh, he reigns for, well, we don't quite know, but certainly less than two years, probably about a year and a half. Um, and honestly, his reign, he doesn't have a lot of time to do very much. Um, so, so there isn't so many uh, monuments or, or artifacts associated with him simply because he doesn't reign for, 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 for all that long. Um, even his grave in the, in the Valley of the Kings is a very hurried affair um, and, and not at all very impressive. So we're into the 19th dynasty. Um, do you want to cover a summary of what you think should be mentioned of significance with the, the next two individuals that you referenced already, Seti the first and Ramesses the, the second, more in just having everyone understand who these people were and their, their role and, and significance in Egypt. And then, and then I'll probably work our way to a closing type question around what you believe the significance overall of the 19th dynasty was yeah. in, uh, in, in Egypt in hindsight. Well, I, I, I think... Ramesses the, the first, obviously he's the one the Ramesside period is named after. You know, Ramesses, Ramesside, that's, that's, he, he's the one the period was named after. In many ways, um, Horemheb is the true founder, at least in my opinion, of the, the Ramesside period, even though, of course, the period is named after his successor. Um, because if we look at Horemheb as an individual and as a king, he doesn't fit very well within the 18th dynasty. He's not, he doesn't have any blood relationship to the Theban royal family as Tutankhamun did, for instance. And it's possible even I had um, some sort of familial relationship to the Theban elite, uh, the Theban royal family. Um, Horemhead doesn't. Um, he, he's an outsider. His, for, his power, his, his authority comes sooner or later from his command of the Egyptian army. Um, and that's what we see as well with uh, Ramesses I. It's what we see with Seti I. And, and obviously by the time Ramesses II comes along, uh, the dynasty has already been established. Um, but both Ramesses I, well, really, Horemheb, Ramesses I, um, and, and, uh, and Seti uh, I are all born um, somewhat far away from the halls of power. Um, and born as commoners, not supposed to be to be kings, uh, and they all become kings. Um, I, of course, was also a commoner who became king, but he was much much more closely related to the Theban royal family and, and much more part of that world. So, in my optic, at least, Horemheb seems to fit better 
with the with the early 19th dynasty than he does with the late 18th dynasty, which is where he's been classified. Um, so I think if, if, if anyone should be considered the true founder of the Ramesside period, it's probably Horemheb. Um, either Horemheb or arguably Ramesses the first successor, his son Seti, because Ramesses, of course, he doesn't have long enough to really do very much. Um, he, he doesn't have the time to actually put much of his um, his sort of uh, opinions and, and, and uh, policies into effect, whereas his son Seti definitely do. Um, Seti reigns for 11 years, his son, he dies quite young, um, but his reign is incredibly busy. Um, he goes on multiple victorious military campaigns in Canaan, in Nubia, in Libya, basically against all the enemies that he can lay his hands on. He very much channels as he intended to do for Moses III. He beats the Hittites on several occasions. He undertakes massive construction work at Tarnak, the hyperstyle hall at Tarnak. Tarnak. I don't know if you've ever visited it. It's beautiful, beautiful column hall. Um, at Karnak was, was begun by, by Seti, was finished by his son Ramesses II because he died before it could be finished. Um, but he very much channeled as well the uh, great builder of the 18th dynasty, Amenhotep III. So in many ways, Horemheb is the king that founds the Ramesside period. Seti is the king that strengthens it and makes it into a force to be reckoned with both financially and militarily. Um, and Ramesses the first is just sort of stuck there in the middle for a couple of years, um, but he of course gets the credit, and and the, the period is named after him. You want to summarize, and Ramesses the second was Seti the first's son, right? Indeed, is that correct? Yes. You want to summarize uh, in a in a similar treatment that you just did with Seti. Do you want to summarize Ramesses' reign, and then we'll work our way to that uh, final type question. Oh, that's going to have to be very much a short summary because he reigns for a very long period of time. I'm not sure I can cover everything, but um, certainly uh, he may have been born as well. He may, in fact, be the, be the last king of his line who's born as a commoner because it's possible that he's a young boy, maybe two or three years old, um, when when his grandfather, Paramesu, becomes Ramesses I. So it's possible that Ramesses was actually born, Ramesses II was actually born as a commoner. Um, but he certainly grew up knowing that he was going to be king, unlike, for instance, Seti, who didn't really, uh, you know, he was in his probably late teens, early 20s, when his father became Horemheb's successor, so he certainly didn't grow up expecting to be king. Um, Ramesses probably did. Ramesses builds really on Seti the first's work and he's very fortunate that his father Seti was as effective a ruler as he was because Ramesses inherits a kingdom that actually works quite well. Um, Egypt's main enemies have been, well, at least quieted down, uh, if not actually defeated. Um, construction projects have, have started again all over the country. Seti seems to have actually spent some time almost tutoring Ramesses um, and and preparing him to take over at, at some point. I don't think Seti expected to die as young as he did. He may have been no more than 40 years old, um, but he certainly did spend some time tutoring his son. So Ramesses is sent, for instance, on a sort of practice mission uh, to oversee um, the uh, carving of granite 
uh, for, for temples at Aswan. Um, of course, there are also uh, you know construction people and architects and people who actually know what they're doing. They're there as well. Um, but Ramesses goes as the sort of titular head of the expedition, so he can see how these things actually operate. He's also sent on a military expedition to Nubia. Um, but first of all, this is an expedition against a couple of hundred rebels, which doesn't seem very dangerous, to be honest. Um, and Seti also sends his own vizier, his own first minister, to actually command the army. Um, and the whole thing feels a little bit like Seti is sort of uh, throwing a bit of a, a softball uh, to his son to give him a chance to, you know, get a bit of a taste of warfare and, and command, but not put him in a position that would actually be dangerous. Um, so Ramesses, I think, takes over in quite good circumstances, really. Far better circumstances than Horemheb Ramesses the first or Seti the first had taken taken the throne. Um, his early reign is characterized by warfare with the Hittites. Of course, in, in the fifth year of his reign, he suffers a near catastrophic defeat at Kadesh um, against the Hittites, mainly, um, although the texts obviously just allude to this, mainly it seems because Ramesses doesn't listen to advice. He's a young, impetuous commander, and he thinks he knows best, and he rushes ahead, ignoring the advice of his generals, his father's old advisors, and, and almost gets himself killed. Um, so he gets better with age, I think, um, focusing much more on, on construction work throughout Egypt. I mean, there are very few pharaohs, probably no pharaohs, that make as huge an impact on the Egyptian architectural landscape as Ramesses II. He is everywhere. Um, and partly that's because he does, he has lots of construction projects all over the place. Part of it is also because he usurps lots of construction projects. So uh, a lot of the, the building work of uh, Amenhotep III, for instance, um, Ramesses has uh, his cartouche chiseled out and has his own Ramesses cartouche put in, 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 in its place. So it looks like he's built various, uh, various temples and things. So he sort of steals um, steals uh, monuments constructed by other kings, but he also builds plenty of his uh, of his own. Um, in the 35th year of his reign, he signs a peace treaty with the Hittites. Um, actually, the, the 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 first currently surviving peace treaty um, between two nations in the world um, in the 1200s BCE, and I believe a copy of that peace treaty is actually hanging in the headquarters of the UN. Um, in the uh, in, in the entrance hall, um, as a sort of memorial, I guess, to to diplomacy. Um, after that, Ramesses very much focuses on construction work. Uh, he expands the royal capital, Pyramesses, the city of Ramesses, which was probably begun during the reign of, of his grandfather. Expanded by Seti the first, and then really expanded a lot by uh, by Ramesses the second. Um, and he has an awful lot of children. Um, possibly over 100, um, because he lives for a very long time. He lives until his late 80s. Um, he reigns for 62 years. It's, it's an almost unprecedented amount of time um, for, for uh, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. I mean, given the average life expectancy back then, it must have been almost like magic to meet a king who was, you know, 87, 88 years old. That's that, you know, if you just think about it from the perspective of, say, you're a new um, court official, and it's entirely possible that that king had in the past promoted not just your father, but your grandfather and great-grandfather as well. 
Um, so I think that's quite that must have been quite an impressive, impressive thing, and probably helped Ramesses keep his authority, keep his power, even in his old age. And it's a remarkable, um, it's a remarkable point you made about the peace treaty. I hadn't heard that before, but that's a uh, a remarkable uh, point. The peace treaty between the Hittites and uh, and uh, Egypt during this period of time. Um, how many pharaohs came after Ramesses II in this dynasty? Uh, there's another five pharaohs that come after Ramesses II, including a, a female pharaoh, Tawasra. Okay, so working our way to that closing question I said I was going to ask, and I believe I said the, the wrong dynasty in, in making reference to it before, and it's, and it's not that I read my notes wrong. I actually wrote it down wrong. So I wrote down the 18th dynasty. So I want to be, I want to be, so I actually read it correctly. <laughs> I just wrote it down wrong. So I want to be uh, crystal clear with the question. So if you were to summarize, and you've shared, you've shared a lot, but the, the dynasty does go, um, does continue for another, I believe you said five, five more pharaohs. So, so as an Egyptologist, when you're looking back at the 19th dynasty, and this might be a, a good place for us to wrap up the conversation, what would you share as the significance, in summary, of the 19th dynasty as it relates to Egypt's history? I think the 19th dynasty, to me at least, is significant, or in my opinion, is significant because the role of Pharaoh changes subtly from the 18th dynasty. The role and the power of Pharaoh. The 19th dynasty the military becomes much more prominent um, in the state administration. The support of the military in order to rule Egypt also seems to become a much, much more important factor um, during, the, uh, during the 19th dynasty. And that's possibly a both these probably a reflection of the fact that Horemheb, even though he's 18th dynasty, but both Horemheb and Paramesu slash Ramesses I and Seti are all or were all military officers and generals before they became became kings. So the, the the prestige, the significance of the military is enhanced. Um, especially because Seti, for instance, conducts quite a few, as I said, military campaigns. Um, Ramesses as well conducts plenty of military campaigns, both in, in Canaan and Nubia. Um, he also pushes Egypt's boundaries uh, in the West further than they've ever been pushed before, constructs a fortress at Sawir Marak, about 300 kilometers west of Alexandria. So very, very far east. Um, so to, to me, the, the 19th dynasty is significant because it, it is a period of power in Egypt and, and some wealth um, after the, the kind of interim period following the death of, of uh, Akhenaten II, whether it ever rivals the power and wealth and prestige of Egypt during the reign of, say, Ankhotep III. I think that's really a matter of, of perspective and, and personal opinion. I think we can't necessarily quantify that. Okay. It's always enjoyable speaking with you, Nikki. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks for inviting me. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Nielsen wrote, he's author of Egyptomaniacs, How We Became Obsessed with Ancient Egypt. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Nikki and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.